Father, we're here before you this morning looking for your presence, your anointing spirit, Lord, to touch and to teach. So I'm praying now, Lord, shield us. Thank you for your provision through the years, and I pray may your word come alive. May our hearts be open. May our faith be simple. May our progress be obedient. We look to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, when I didn't have all of my four children, I found myself in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was given the opportunity to go for an airplane ride with one of my wife's relatives. He was a gifted pilot and had flown uh, for the Drug Enforcement Agency, and he would fly over the mountains of Appalachia looking for uh, plots of marijuana. Now, I had not flown a lot, uh, and little airplanes relate to the environmental conditions differently than big ones do. Although most of you have probably been in a big airplane and you've looked out the window and you've seen those wings flapping while you're going through the turbulence, they're made to do that. Uh, Most of us don't like running through the potholes of the sky on a large silver bullet. Uh, Some of us have gotten used to it. The first time you experience, though, uh, you'd like to be with somebody who you could ask a question. And the question you'd like to ask, and the question that I've asked at different times is, is this normal? If the answer is no, your stress goes through the roof. If the answer is yes, you remain with a measure of stress and uh, duress in the midst of the moment, but it's not quite as bad. So my wife, my two boys sat in the back seat of this small Cessna. I sat up front with the pilot. And on this given day, it was very sunny. And I began to learn about thermals, the updrafts of the air and the downdrafts of the air. And I can remember flying in that little bitty airplane, and it wasn't the the rough ride like you just hit a pothole. It was the fact that you felt like you were on a huge sea with uh, swells of a thousand feet or more, and the airplane would all of a sudden just be, you'd feel like you were being pushed into your seat, and other times it felt like you were in a slow motion free fall. And what was supposed to be a joyous ride turned out to be not very joyous at all, especially for the two boys who were very little, probably three and five. And uh, I turned around at different times. I have some pictures that commemorate the moment. And you can see stress written on the face of the little children. My uh, pilot, however, was enjoying this and explaining to us that depending on what the surface of the ground was underneath us, Uh, related to how much updraft there was. And that little airplane was just riding along on these big swells of the unseen air currents. When we finally got down to the ground, my wife likes to remind me of how my oldest son, finally with a measure of relief on his face, looked at her and said, I'm sure glad I had my seatbelt on. There's something about a, a childlike understanding of a circumstance that illustrates to us something very important this morning. And that is that God cares for his children, whether their understanding is large about the issues going on behind them or whether they're looking with simplicity of heart into circumstances that trouble them. I can remember my first flight into Midway, living not far away from Chicago as I do, and the plane banked this way and banked that way and dipped and And I I did turn to my seatmate and say, is this normal? She assured me it was. This morning, friends, we're in a period of time that's not normal. We're experiencing 
in probably three or four generations something that we've never experienced before. Maybe never as a nation this kind of biological risk. But certainly it's been at least three generations, maybe four, since we had to deal with the idea of food scarcity across the nation. My grandfather fought in World War II, both in the Army and in the Navy. And during that period of time, those who lived stateside were familiar with something called a ration card. Now, we don't have ration cards today, nor do we have long lines in most places. But what we've seen in the supermarkets as of late is a little bit troubling. People running to make sure that they have what they need and probably going beyond what they need. One healthcare worker was chastising the residents of a large city not long ago saying, look, we're working almost nonstop to serve you, and when we show up at the supermarket, it would be nice if there was some food left for us. So what's in our hearts this morning? That's the elemental question. Are we looking out for ourselves in such a way that actually increases our stress, destroys our faith, and robs God of a witness? Are we able to face this moment of uncertainty and other ones that are coming with confidence? This morning, I've entitled my message, When Nature Dies, The Almost Last Supper. I want to talk to you this morning about the stories of the Old Testament scriptures that illustrate the future challenges of God's faithful covenant-keeping people. And I've chosen this morning to focus on the life of an unknown woman and a very prominent prophet. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and open them up to the book of 1 Kings, looking at chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. Actually, 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Our story is one of a prophet. We know very little about Elijah. There is no real warm-up to his appearance on the prophetic stage. He appears out of nowhere. The abruptness of his appearance in scriptures must be somewhat akin to the abruptness of his appearance before Ahab, the king of the northern ten tribes. When Ahab is confronted by Elijah, he's told that it's going to be a long time until it rains. It's going to be a long time until there's dew on the grass. The problem was, was that the nation of Israel had apostatized. It had moved away from its simple fidelity to Christ. And it had brought into its ranks, no doubt with the help of Ahab's queen Jezebel, the worship of Baal. Now, Baal was the storm god. He was responsible for the rain that fell on the land of Israel. And it's no wonder that we should find that there is this showdown between the God who's promised to create seasons in abundance of the ground and this false God concocted by the heathen nations around them. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elisha the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead. He said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is in the east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and he lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. But it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. In 1962, Rachel Carson published what would become the first seminal work on issues of environmental dynamics in Western worlds. She entitled her book, Silent Spring. It was two years before I was born. 
The profiting of the title suggests that at some point in time, the natural cycle of this earth would be destroyed by man's uh, ravaging of the natural environment. A generation later, when I was in college, I can remember that the element that we were dealing with was uh, acid rain. In my speech class, I felt it almost my duty to dialogue about what our industrial pollutants, especially our power plants, were doing to change the chemistry of the sky and kill lakes in upper New York State. Now, a generation later, as my children are going through and finishing up college, we deal with a whole new plight. We call it global warming. Indeed, there is a generation, especially amongst the young, who are growing in frustration and desperation relative to the treatment of the planet and the future inheritance or lack of that will be theirs. There's no doubt that the Bible talks about the fact that this world will grow old like a garment. And there's no doubt that eventually, whether it's man-caused or God-intervened, that there will be trauma on the face of the earth similar to the trauma that's told in this story. So I want to ask you, how did you relate to the idea of not being able to go out and shop as frequently, or even just the perceived idea that there might not be food on the shelf for you when you got there? When I showed up to Walmart in our small community earlier this week, there was a police car parked out front. The lights were on. We got into the store. I went in on the market, on the, uh, the home goods side as opposed to the side where the food is. It just so happened that it was the food side where the police had been. And there in one of the aisles of the market, there had been a fight. Now, I don't know if the fight was over food. In this society, the population density is not like it is on the east or the west coast. But I know later on when I was shopping with my wife, the police car was still out there and I heard things falling to the floor. Little did I realize there was a person a few aisles away throwing them at the stalker. Turned out she was related to the person that had been in a fight. I told my wife, wait here. I didn't know what was going on. And I peered around the corner and found the lane, later asked somebody what had been happening. You probably weren't involved in a physical altercation to get your food. But isn't it strange how people's behavior changed at a threat to what degree perceived and what degree real? We're all waiting, hoping, and praying to find out. What's it like in your heart at the moment when you sense that things might be shutting down and closing up? At the moment when all the regular supply lines or the support structures in place look fragile and uncertain? When we look at the life of Elijah, it's very important that we understand there is no person in the Bible amongst or for whom miracles of food were performed more. You say to yourself, why does that matter? It matters because Elijah becomes a symbol. He becomes a prototype, as it were, of not only an individual or prophetic line of announcers of righteousness and calling back to faithfulness, but of a whole generation. Take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, we have another prophetic call to return to faithfulness to God. In this call from which silence will follow for several hundred years before the appearance of Jesus, there is admonition and there is warning. Four short chapters, but the last chapter with six short verses tells us that Elijah's role supersedes and goes beyond the moment in time that he was experiencing on his way to a little town called Zarephath. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, 
And that day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So leave them neither root nor branch. Now, as the Old Testament prophets do, they mingle together prophecies relative to the final eschatological or end time element of prophecy. And in this case, we're going to see also the messianic prophecy of Jesus. Jesus will fulfill both roles. He came first as the redeemer, the one to provide and exhibit the full expression of grace. He'll come back later, his second time, as the final judge and arbiter of righteousness. When the door of grace is closed, when the story of probation is ended, Jesus will return and he will be the judge and the earth not being cleansed by water but cleansed by fire will face its maker and its redeemer. The sad part will be is that the opportunity of grace will be ended. This is where Malachi takes us in verse 1. Verse 2, but as for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves of the stall. This is a reference, no doubt, to the final end of all things when those who have sojourned on planet earth and received the gift of salvation will receive their heavenly inheritance. The dark night of sin will be over. We will be living in the rooms prepared for us in the house of God. You'll tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. This is actually good news, friends, because in effect what this says is, as falsely taught in modern Christendom, is that there is no ad infinitum uh, experience of suffering for those that reject God. A growing understanding in Christian circles is that those who refuse the gift of salvation are allowed to not exist. Annihilationism, some call it. God would not forever make them endure his presence. And for those that reject him, the fire that cleanses the earth of the second coming will reduce the sin problem to ashes. Unfortunately, those sinners that have clung to sin will be reduced with it. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. It appears that at the end of time, it is the word of God that is the important element. Of preparation. My servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb, another name for Sinai. Verse 5, Before, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The story that we're getting ready to look into, the land is suffering under the curse of God. There's no rain, which means there's no crops, which eventually means, eventually means there'll be no streams and eventually no wells with water in them. What we're looking at in this story here and what we're reading in the words of Malachi is that there will be an end-time scenario that mimics or that takes the symbol or the experience, the type of the past, and turns it into the final reality of deliverance, the final call to repentance. Is Elijah going to be brought back from the dead? Elijah didn't die. We know that. Is Elijah going to be sent back down to the earth to do a special work? Or does Elijah become a representative of a group of people at the end of time in the midst of apostasy and spiritual chaos, call the people of God back into a covenant relationship with him? There's no doubt that the latter must be the experience. Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Jesus comments on Elijah. Some people mistook Jesus for Elijah or Elijah for Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, different times when people are asking, 
Some are suggesting that the promise of Malachi has been met in Jesus, that Elijah is here. The disciples themselves have dialogues with Jesus about Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration has happened. And he's in dialogue with them about it. His disciples, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. In other words, what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, nobody was to look at or know about until after Jesus had been resurrected. His disciples asked him in verse 10, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, I just showed you in the book of Malachi why it says Elijah has to come first. Verse 11, and he answered and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But then he says something very interesting in verse 12. But I say unto you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Why does a story in 1 Kings 17 matter to us? Why does a woman who's about out of food and is asked to feed a prophet of God before she feeds her own son, how does it have relevance in the 21st century? I'm showing you how right now. The spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah was in the preaching and the ministry of John the Baptist. And Elijah becomes a symbol of an announcement by God, by few or by many. Jesus says that John fulfilled the role, but that there is a other fulfillment of Elijah's ministry coming. You say, why does that matter? Why it matters is because the Bible also declares that this earth is growing old and it's going to die. And that this earth will come under the convulsions of the judgments of God and the seven last plagues. Why does it matter? Because God's people living in the end time will have a food scarcity issue. There will be a shortage of provision for the world's needs. And we need to understand what God did for Elijah, knowing that God will do again for those who carry forward the ministry of Elijah. So let's go back to 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 16 or 17, we find an amazing story of provision of food over and over again. Now, those of us growing up in America, the last two generations of which I represent, being 56 years old, we've never had a day, at least most of us, there might be some watching for whom this is not true, but for most of us, we've never had a day when we doubted whether or not we'd eat. I know that in some places in America, this is not the case, and it is incumbent. It is our duty to do something about that. But in most homes that have known a middle-class experience, even in some that have known lower than that, there's been provision through hot lunches at school, even breakfasts and suppers, community organizations. In a land of want, it is a sad that some would be wanting. But when we come to the story of Elijah and when we read the seven plagues of Revelation, we find out that scarcity will come upon the earth in the future, and it will come upon at the very time that the ministry of Elijah is going forward amongst God's faithful remnant. So why does Elijah's life matter so much? Because for those who don't know where their next meal is coming from, they need to know the God of Elijah as God knew him. So here's Elijah. He's sent to a brook. He shows up in the house of Ahab. And by the way, in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 17, it says that Elijah prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. Quite a prayer. Raining down on yourself, privation and hardship. What was it about Elijah 
that James would record that he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain? Did he want to close down all the supermarkets in Judea? In some sense, you could say yes, because he knew the spiritual demise of the nation was greater than the physical suffering of wondering where your next meal was coming from. So here we are living in a COVID-19 moment. How are we looking at it? Is it possible that God is allowing his remnant church and those of the world to realize that the solutions are beyond man at times? And that the ultimate provision of God comes from heaven? I have a relative that works in Wall Street interest. I can remember as a young man years ago, sitting across from him at a picnic table at a family reunion, talking about dynamics of security and financial issues. But he cut right to the chase when he, dealing in the millions of dollars, said to me, everything's okay as long as the sun comes out and the rain falls. In other words, he understood that real provision came from above. And while he may be at the top of the mountain of financial security, in the end, all of us are depending on the goodness of God who set up the seasons and the cycles and made provision for the germination of seeds and the cultivation of the ground for the harvest of life. Everybody listening to me today needs to understand there is a limit on the provision man can make for himself. And underneath it, like the great superstructures of a long bridge, Spanning a moment of insecurity while sin is reigning is the God in heaven who's declared after the flood of Noah that he would never again cover the whole earth, but until he came, there would be seed time and harvest. We're not dealing with issues of nature dying at the moment. Although during the seven last plagues, this is what will happen. The earth will be ravished. The question is, is the spiritual preparation of my life such that I have, will have confidence that is in a crisis mode or that I will have confidence in the mode in the moment of crisis. So look at Elijah's life. He's there by the brook Cherith. He's isolated in a ravine far from the center of Israel's governmental life in Jezreel. There, morning and evening, the ravens come. And whenever he wants a drink, he goes down to the brook and he gets fresh, clean water. The truth of the matter is, the prophet needs his faith to grow. The chapters that are coming in his future life are bigger and greater than the experience of faith he's had thus far. And God is graduating him through a series of lessons to make him a stronger, more confident man for the moments when he's going to need it. Elijah himself, as well as the widow that he's about to meet, are both on faith journeys. So you have those that have great spiritual advantage, and you have those living in Tyre and Sidon, who some would decry spiritually ignorant. Elijah goes to the brook one day and notices it's losing its flow. Eventually, there's no water left. What does Elijah do? Does he cry out in fear and despair to God? I hardly think so. But he does call out to God, and God directs him to change. He's going to move now from the eastern side of the country and go all the way up to the far northwest to the place where heathendom reigns supreme. Take your Bibles if you have them, and let's turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16, I believe it is. Go back just a chapter or two. And what we find is that in this chapter, we see where Jezebel's heritage is from. Go back to verse 31. Talking about Ahab, it says, It came about in 1 Kings 16, 31, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, which had been idol worship, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, 
king of the Sidonians, and he went to serve Baal and worshiped him. What a place for God to send Elijah. He's going to take him from the recesses of the remote parts of the nation of Israel, and he's going to send him right underneath the shadow of Jezebel's father into the place where this Baal worship has its origination. Hardly the place you would think that you would want to be hid, but I want to assure you, at the end of time, God has the ability to hide his people wherever he wants to hide them. And it's not going to be that you can make it to a mountain or you can make it to a cave, although some will be there. It'll be the fact that when God lays his hand upon you, your covering will be as secure and beyond that any that could be created or designed or engineered by any of the, by any of the military mightiest minds on the face of the planet. God will hide Elijah right under the shadow of Jezebel's father, and he will be safe and secure there for a period of time. What happens while he's there is he's fed for probably two years out of the miraculous supply of a jar of meal, flour that won't run out, and oil that won't give up. But that's not the end of his provision of food. It's as if God can't say enough about the generation of Elijah's that will come on scene, the remnant of his people that will announce apostasy and invitation to restoring the covenant. God will do story after story of his provision. Turn over to chapter 19 of 1 Kings. It's as if God can't put enough exclamation points on the element of his being able to provide. What happens? He has a showdown on Mount Carmel. 850 prophets of evil against he alone. Nobody in the nation will speak up and say, yes, we've learned something after three and a half years of drought. It's not until the fire falls and consumes the stones, the water, and the sacrifice. Elijah runs down off the mountain, and instead of looking out for himself, he earnestly prayed that it wouldn't rain. We know he prays seven times that it would now. Why? God's honor is at stake. The way you behave in these moments of crisis has something to do with a projection of witness without words. When we act like there's no God to provide for us and we're looking out for ourselves first and foremost, we're weakening our own confidence as we strengthen our own dependence on self. It's a confidence in God that's losing strength as a confidence on ourselves with self-centeredness and self-focus at the center that's actually the root problem. Elijah comes down off Mount Carmel, sleeps in the gate at Jezreel, doesn't get much before somebody shakes him and wakes him up in the midst of the rain and says, listen, she's going to get you and you better get out of here. The exact message is, you destroyed 850, by tomorrow the same time, you'll be 851. Now Elijah, you would think, would be prepared, but he had a wrong idea. In his idea, what happened on the mountain would shake and wake even Jezebel. He did not know the roots and the depths of evil that were woven into her heart and the weakness of Ahab. And so Elijah is not spiritually prepared for the moment when he senses his life is in danger again. After carrying that burden for a period of time, trusting in God and yet always aware he was a marked man, he thinks he's finally going to be able to lay that down and the problem's fixed, but it's not. What does he do? He jumps up and in terror runs away. Verse six and onward. Well, five. He lay down, First Kings 19, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. This is after running as far as he could run in his strength. 
And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. This is miracle number three, if you want to call it that. If you can call two years or three years of constant provision by the ravens and by a jar of oil and a jar of flour that won't run out, if you can call this number three, this might actually be 1,333. Then he looked, and behold, there was by his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. God wakes him up and says, I know you're hungry. The angel of the Lord came again, verse 7, and he touched him and he said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank. What I want us to see is that in this third cycle of food miracles for Elijah, God is saying for those at the end of time who go through the trauma of being wanted in a time of privation and starvation for many, that he will provide. Bread and water will be sure. This is no accident that this prophet of all prophets have associated with him miracles of food. There's no sense for us acting like we're going to starve as long as our father is on the throne. And while there may be privation and hardship, it is not to be the privation and hardship of soul and spirit that worries constantly as if someone doesn't know the number of hairs on our head. But the story's not over. He gets fed by the ravens. He gets fed by the poor widow. He gets fed by the angel two times. And finally, if it's not enough, God says, I'll make it to where you can live without food. It says in the rest of verse 8, that he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I'm not so certain, or uncertain, I should say, that the experience of Jesus where he went 40 days without food, by the way, friends, at the end of that 40 days, there was a miraculous angelic provision for his food. And the same Jesus who gave food for 5,000 Jews in their families and food for 4,000 mainly Gentiles in their families, the same Jesus who spread food out on the desert floor, the same Jesus who made water flow from a rock, the same Jesus who turned the poisonous gourds into good food for Elisha, the same Jesus who is well able to produce food, I'm not so uncertain that God's end time people may find themselves in a moment at the very end of time when like Jesus, they might go 40 days without food, but it won't matter because the God who made the human body can sustain it without us putting anything in our mouths. It's important for us to realize God is not, God is, his arm is not short. He's the creator of all things. And whether he needs to send it by the ravens or by the poor, or whether he needs to send it by the angels, or whether he says, I'm going to show you don't even need it now at all. And what's more important about this story, I believe, is the tenderness of God providing for Elijah when he's really running away from his duty. But enough about Elijah. Let's look at the widow of Zarephath. Was this her last supper? 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah has run out of the provision of the ravens and he's run out of the water at Cherith. And how he makes his way those many miles from the east side of Israel to the northwest side of Israel and into the region of Tyre and Sidon, we don't know. He had enough. And when he gets there, an interesting experience is going to happen. God has told him, that when the brook dried up, other provision was on its way. Verse 9, 1 Kings 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. In the New Testament, it's referred to as Sarepta. That's the Greek rendition of the name. And stay there. For behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. 
Now, it's superbly important that we understand something about these verses we just read. When the nation of Israel was in apostasy, they had no interest in the voice of Elijah except to find it and extinguish it, somehow thinking that he was the actual point of problem. God says, if I can't use my people that are declared to be my people, I'll use my people that nobody recognizes are my people. You may fill a pew in a church every weekend. You may sit in a Seventh-day Adventist church service regularly. That does not mean that you have a childlike simplicity of faith and a willingness to obey that declares yourself to be a humble, faithful child of God. It's not orthodoxy of belief. It's not tenure of belonging to the religious clubs. There's something about this woman who has found in Elijah's God some kind of communion that makes her willing to obey even though her circumstances are dire. Now, some would suggest that she recognized that Elijah was a foreigner and even a prophet by his dress and his dialect. That may be. At the same time, it doesn't change the storyline that God has people outside of the well-declared flocks that are to declare his faithfulness as opposed to their unfaithfulness to the world. God has commanded. The direction here cannot suggest someone who just sort of has a gift for hospitality and is going to recognize somehow in the prophetic appearance of Elijah that she should do something good. No, God does not direct his children to do things unless they have entered into a covenant relationship with him and they have distinctly been able to hear his voice. So here's this woman not a part of the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of Israel at the current moment, and yet known to God to be someone who will obey. And so Elijah goes on his way realizing in God's goodness to him that provision for him is not going to be in the house of a rich pagan. It's going to be in the home of a faithful poor woman, a sufferer, suffering along with him. This is a kindness to Elijah. In the same way that he had the wrong idea of how Mount Carmel would turn out and that everything would be better, God decided to give him an understanding that the solution now will not look like a solution to you, but it is. I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. No one can go past this verse without saying to themselves, do I know the voice of God good enough to be prepared to do the kind of things that this spiritually, supposedly ignorant woman is called to do? Because what God is going to do is he's going to say, in effect, set your son on the sidelines, put my prophet in the position of favor, feed him the last meal, and don't be afraid. We don't know how much of that was communicated to her, but we do know this. She was directed to meet the prophet's needs. Verse 10. He arose and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and he said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. We don't know, but that Elijah might have been hesitating because the situation looked more dire than even he imagined. Here she is probably in the garb of a widow. There she is out by the gate, maybe there because she's not quite ready to embrace this stranger for whom she will have to share her last little bit of fare, and yet sort of knowing that maybe God's going to do something. Elijah looks, it says she's picking up two sticks. Why? Because she's going to take the last two ingredients, olive, olive oil and meal, and feed the last two people, her and her son. But Elijah says, 
after she starts away from him, perhaps God impresses him, go farther, do what I said. And he calls out to her and he says, would you bring me a little bit of bread in your hand as well? This appears to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The woman straightens up, turns around, looks at Elijah, and in effect says, how dare you ask me to do this? Can't you tell by looking at me? Can't you tell by what's written on my face? Isn't it evident to you that I'm the wrong person to ask for anything? But Elijah's response is born of faith, for he's clearly heard the voice that she heard that this rendezvous with food was to happen. As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, she said, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat. And Elijah said to her, don't fear. If there's a message that comes out of Elijah's life for which must resonate in the experience and the belief system of God's people at the end of time, it's don't fear. Why was she afraid? If God had commanded her that he was to use her to take care of the prophet, why was she afraid? I'd posture to you she was afraid because she had not moved to be ready to do what God had said. Instead, she had refused. She wasn't completely out of the orbit of his impression. She was out at the gate. But she had not made preparation for his coming. You say, well, he, she may not have known when, and that may be true. We don't know if she had a dream. We don't know if she had a vision. We don't know if an angel came to her and said, he's coming. But we do know this. God had commanded her to make provision. She had not prepared. And when God prompts you to do something and you don't do it, the result is, is that your faith gets smaller and your negativity gets larger. And then you're even willing to complain. And go against what God has already convicted you to do. I don't have any food. I have enough for me and my boy. And how dare you ask me to provide it for you before I provide it for him. But Elijah says, don't fear. He cuts to the chase of the spiritual disease that's in effect. Now I want to tell you, there's very few people that will admit they're afraid. I've heard some very interesting things. People taking very decided actions that say beyond the shadow of a doubt, I'm afraid. But the words out of their mouth are, I'm not afraid. Listen, in the same way I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day, our actions are speaking far louder than our words are. Don't tell me you're not afraid when you take the actions that say loud and clear like a siren. I'm scared. I don't know what the future holds. And this is how I'm going to handle it. Don't be afraid, Elijah said. The woman did not reply back to her self-awareness, I'm not afraid. She simply listened as he went on. Make me a little piece of bread first and bring it out to me. And afterwards, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Now you need to understand something. If you want security, if you want real confidence, there's a few things that are very elemental in this story that if you approach the day-to-day living 
If you miss the opportunity for the application of the spiritual principles and the presence of Christ in your life, you'll be in huge trouble. This woman was confronted with the simplicity of choosing to obey or not obey. No doubt hanging over her was a death sentence. The absence of obedience meant for certainty the long, slow demise of starvation, of want and privation. God had already spoken to her and said, don't put yourself first. She had exercised hospitality in the past. This was not a simple exercise of hospitality, though. How many times has this woman wondered to herself, what am I going to tell my boy when I take the last scoop, when I take that jar and I take that, that clay lid off it and I dump it into the mixing bowl for the last time, what am I going to tell my boy? There's no daddy in the picture. There's no neighbor looking out for us. There's no welfare system. There's nobody that's going to put a card on my door that says, if you need anything, let me know, because nobody else has much more than she does. This woman has played through all of this, this maternal bond that would say, put your child first. God, like the story of Abraham and Isaac, is actually saying, offer up your experience to me, since I have expressly commanded you to not put your child first. Listen, friends, how many people have gone into the mission field with a group of children to come out with less than they started? And how many followed them in the next generation knowing that's how it turned out? When we say, I'm going to put me and my own ahead of God's clear direction, when selfishness takes over at an individual or a corporate level, you can be certain that confidence is on its way out even though momentary comfort is on its way up. This woman was called to put God's work first. And in this time of financial duress, not only of scarcity of potential access to food, God is calling his remnant church to put his work forward, to move his work with its best. No blemished offerings. You're tempted. Your hours have been cut back. Some perhaps have not even been faithful in tithe and offering. There is no doubt that this pause on the activity of man is God pulling some of the weeds out of the garden of our, of our social and individual and collective hearts, saying, you know what? These are choking out what matters most. The end of the road is in front of you. And I want you to understand that I am your provision, not you yourselves. This should be the best year for the church in regards to the commitment of time and talent and treasure. For all persons listening should recognize that God is saying, we are almost home. There was a rich businessman years ago in the age of sailing ships. And he made good money as a trader sending his boats out on the open sea. One day, someone brought to him a, a message it was handwritten, and he was breathing rapidly at the door. And on it, it said, such and such ship sunk. The courier was surprised when the man went and found a way to write out a large donation to the church. The boy was stunned. He turned to the courier and he said, don't you understand what this message says? Lay not up your treasure on earth. He recognized in the moment of tragedy a call to spiritual triumph. And this is where God's church is at this moment. We've seen in these last week or two, we've seen the ability for movements to be rapid ones. The issue is whether or not they're final movements. 
Of that, I'm quite confident they are not. But they are a wake-up call to God's people so that when this birth pang, when this contraction anticipating future deliverance pauses for a moment, God's people can be quick about their work and focused on what they're doing. This is not the moment when we say to ourselves, I'm going to restrict my commitments to the cause of God. If ever there was a moment when God is saying, move forward with greater fidelity, greater generosity, greater giving of time, talent, and treasure, it's now. God specifically directs this woman to step aside for her own needs so he can step in to show her what real confidence looks like. Simplicity and obedience to the voice of God can and never will be replaced for building real confidence. It's important that you read your Bible. It's important that you pray. But if you don't listen in that dynamic, if you cannot hear the voice behind you saying, this is the way walking in it, and I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm talking about the growing conviction that comes to a heart of a man, a woman, or a child as they actually enter into the presence of the Most High. There are millions of God's people some of them not inside the ranks of spiritual Israel at this moment, who are waiting for a word of direction. They're waiting for a prophetic encounter. They're looking for someone to bring the principles of nobility and generosity, the dynamics of real religion, back into the civic arena. They're looking for real Christians at work, at school, at play. God is actually calling us in this moment to recognize the obligations we have to learn to discern his voice. For I tell you, to have a relationship with the church without having a relationship with God is to lose more confidence with every passing day. Not that the church is in the way of a relationship with God, but it could never substitute for one. God is calling each of us to discern that Abrahamic encounter where God calls us to move forward with an ever-growing sense of conviction. It's been weighing on you. God wants you to do more, not less. God wants you to put him first, not second. But learning to distance that voice is a certainty for momentary pleasure and comfort and future crisis of confidence. What will you do, friends? Is your relationship with Jesus simple enough, no matter how educated, no matter how well healed, no matter how well cultured, how well financed, how well networked, Is your relationship with God one that you can obey as a child and go away in the confidence that a father up above is looking down in love and he knows just what you need? This is really the issue in this chapter. There are two faith journeys coming together at the moment. A widow with very little spiritual culture and a prophet who's had the privilege of encountering God in a deep prayer life. Their lives are coming together. The questioning faith of one is meeting up with the confidence of another. And the outcome is going to be not only does she eat and her boy eats, but he eats with them for many days afterwards. Most commentators think for two years. So 365 times three times two. How many thousands of meals come out of a jar that would have gone dry if she would have made their supper as mom and boy the last supper? How many times did the boy run to the jar and say, Mommy, I've got another scoop? How many times did he tip the olive oil container over and say, Mommy, here's some more oil? What a story of faith. 
The truth of the matter is her faith is tested again, though, because the boy dies. One story of conquest in confidence with God does not thus make all future conquests null and void. One chapter follows another. She wonders in the midst of it all, even with this dynamic provision, if somehow her sinfulness isn't in the way. Elijah takes the boy up the stairs. He stretches himself out on the boy, prays three times, and delivers the boy back to his mother. Another amazing story of deliverance. In other words, this boy probably succumbed to the things that are striking fear into the hearts of people right now. We won't know till the other side of heaven whether it was the flu or SARS or swine. We won't know if it's COVID or corona. All we know is that what couldn't happen by way of starvation and circumstance was a function of biological surrender at some level, and the boy dies. God is not caught off guard, and the faith of the prophet and the faith of the mother is growing. What an amazing journey. Now, let's take the elements of simplicity and sincerity, and let's make sure we understand the flow from fear to faith, from insecurity to security. Whenever God wants to take and create confidence in somebody, he moves them from a circle of comfort into a posture of discomfort. If you reject the journey of moving, if the convenience and the comfort of the moment you're in is what you prize, if God cannot move you out of your circle of comfort into a posture of discomfort, your confidence will never grow. God takes us from comfort moves us into discomfort, and then we have a decision to make. The decision is either to obey the conviction that he's laid upon us, to move forward in faith, whatever we understand that faith to be, and by the way, friends, in precept and principle in the Word, and by communion with godly people, God will never call us to something that he cannot affirm in spirit and by other godly individuals. But when God moves us from comfort into discomfort, we get to make a decision. If the decision is to obedience, the outcome is a greater confidence. And thus, Elijah can go from being fed by a raven to a widow to an angel and not being fed at all. And all along the way, God is showing himself faithful, which is where faith comes from. But if you're not willing to move, if you've got the Teflon lining over your heart, your spiritual sensitivities... If you're a person of steel, if like Peter, the ideas God is putting before you aren't acceptable. I mean, on the night before the crucifixion, Jesus says, you need to be converted. Jesus says, you're going to be shaken. And by the way, the spirit of prophecy reminds us that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So how much is shaken right now? In the last few weeks, watching countries close down and cities go into quarantine, how much is shaken? Are the actions of God's people and of those listening this morning that may not have declared them such to be so, are they in a position right now where they're moving according to fear or faith? Is confidence growing or weakening? It'll depend on the fact of whether or not in simplicity and sincerity we choose to hear the voice and let God move us into a posture of discomfort so that in obedience we can move into an experience of greater confidence. God moves you from comfort to discomfort to greater confidence. When I was a boy, there were certain things my mother required me to do. 
I heard somebody telling a story like this recently. They said, when I was a boy, it was my job to go out and get the dog every night. The problem was the sun was set and the inky shadows of the night were all lurching eerily around me. My mom would say to me, this person said, here, I'll stand at the door while you go to get him. And so she stood. And with that sense of a motherly set of eyes looking over them, he would race out to where the dog was and return. Night by night, this ritual was repeated for a period of time until eventually he realized that his mother wasn't standing there anymore. She stood there. And after he started out, she left. This at first struck a new measure of discomfort, maybe terror or fear into him. But eventually, he got to the place where he could make the journey to get the dog from the ravages of the night and bring the dog in. How many moments in our life has faithful parents like a faithful God, and this faithful God is still parenting us, brought us into situations. Maybe it's talking to somebody you don't want to talk to. Maybe it's making a commitment you don't want to make. Maybe it's giving up something you don't want to give up. The biggest problem in moving from a posture of fear and lack of confidence to confidence is accepting the middle stage that God is actually saying something to you and calling you into a posture of discomfort. Yes, I want you to release your hold on that. Yes, I want you to embrace this. Most of us will put up a firewall that keeps us from ever getting out of comfort into discomfort. But for the coming crisis that's coming on this earth, and I don't have the power to say to you that it's not, God in his goodness is allowing little moments in which the spiritual sinew, the fabric, the weave, and the warp of our faith is being tightened, the tapestry strengthened, the muscle strained, stretched, and stronger. Indeed, when this story is over and Elijah shows up to meet Ahab outside the cities of Israel, the counter is set, the mold is there. Not long ago, I got on an airplane, actually just about two months ago, and as that airplane, big Airbus A320, as it lifted itself off the asphalt and the cement at O'Hare International Airport, and crested itself up to its 30-some thousand-plus uh, flight pattern on its way to Houston, Texas, I sat back to relax. So often these trips involve lack of sleep the night before. I was sitting there in my seat about an hour into the flight when all of a sudden the plane shuddered, vibrated. There was a big thud. Something seemed wrong. Indeed, something was wrong. Someone said they saw smoke out the right side. I just happened to be sitting in the exit row. For all of those moments when the steward or the flight attendant had given their directions and, and you know, you needed to pay attention, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, this may be a moment in time where I actually needed to have paid attention to what was going on. The flight attendant came walking very rapidly down the aisle from the front of the airplane, leaned in over a person or two, looked out the window. All the while you could hear noises you shouldn't hear. And the plane had a, a low-level vibration in it. She walked back up to the front. She picked up that phone. She's talking to the people on the other side of the locked door. Pretty soon, I'm watching her all the time. Pretty soon, she sits down in her little jump seat and puts her seatbelt on, which if you've ever noticed, flight attendants don't do that except for when you're landing and taking off. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, 
we have a problem. Now, I'm not an airplane mechanic. I'm not an aeronautical engineer, and I'm not a pilot. But I've flown enough to know what noises are normal on an airplane and what noises aren't. Fortunately, not long after that flight attendant sat down in her jump seat, I heard something else that brought assurance to me. Over the loudspeaker came the voice of the captain. He had no stress. He had no fear. He did have to deliver a message that I wasn't really excited to hear. He told us that the engine on the right side of the airplane had gone out. Now there's only two. And while these large General Electric or Pratt & Whitney engines, I don't know who make them, while they're powerful, it's not really all that comforting to know that one of the two main elements of propulsion is no longer working on your airplane. He told us he was going to be checking in with the appropriate people, and not long later he came on and he said, this is what we're doing. We're going to land this airplane in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, I don't know that I've ever landed at Little Rock, Arkansas airport. It just turned out that this airline didn't have any gates at the Little Rock, Arkansas airport. And what, it, what did happen was is that as we came in, we had this wonderful escort by all these lime green machines that looked like they could go anywhere and do anything. When that airplane finally landed and it was on the ground, all of us felt a little bit different measure of comfort than we'd had just moments before at five miles above the face of the earth. But the voice of the captain had the power to either make us more afraid or to assure us that all would be well. The engine on the right was not totally kaput. They throttled it way back so that at least it wasn't a huge windsock. And slowly with one engine, he brought that big Airbus A320 back down onto the ground. And finally, when they brought their little ladder on the back of their pickup truck, their little set of stairs, and we came down off the airplane, all of us were thrilled to put our feet on terra firma. Friends, there are turbulent times in front of us. There are going to be moments when it looks like some of the support and sustenance of the church or your life individually is going to go out. But I'm here to assure you today that even when nature itself dies... And it looks like we're at the end. Christians are not to be known as the people who, because they have the inside prophetic track, whether from the spirit of prophecy or the Bible itself, make sure they've snatched up everything there is to snatch up so that their bread and water can be sure. The truth of the matter is, God is our refuge and strength. He is the fortress around us. It is His hand that covers us. It is the provision that makes for our needs. And at this moment in earth's history where we're getting a little wake-up call that we should be attentive to the higher motivations and the higher callings of reaching a lost world. May we, like the widow of Zarephath, with simplicity and obedience, obey the growing convictions of God in our lives. May God's work in lost world, may His organized church and your local congregation sense that your commitments are renewed, your focus is restored. May in your home there be the renewing of the morning and evening altar and sacrifice. And may we come to a moment where we sense in our prayer communion with God that His presence is enough and His provision is complete. Whether it's ravens or widows or angels or 40 days without food, God's not caught off guard for the future of what's coming. 
The question is, do we care for all those who don't know there's a God like that? My appeal to you this morning is that we have a desire to recommit to the message and mission of Christ so that they too can know that it is well with their souls. So that they too can know there's a God they can love and trust. So that as the birth pangs of deliverance, which will be trauma to the unsaved and witness to those that are waiting for their salvation, so that more could have the confidence that Christ envisions that we all have. Not as we become the best food hoarders and the first ones to look out for ourselves, but as for those who follow the other first principle and let the beauty of Christ at the moment of the greatest self-focus be the greatest other-focused element of our individual and corporate witness. May God help each of us as we go forward into a crisis to have an ever-increasing confidence that his provision for his children is complete and sure and that none will ever be without when a heavenly father who barely mirrors the intentions and desires of, a heavenly, of an earthly mother or father would give to their own children. May God bless us as we move forward waiting to see what will happen next. Father, as we come to you, we come praying, Lord, that you'll take us feeble and afraid, self-focused, self-centered by nature. We're praying, Lord, that love would cast out all fear, that we would understand that we've been brought into the finest and most faithful family in all the cosmos. I'm praying, Lord, that we'll take the little steps that will show yourself to be alive, the God who desires no visible representation of who he is is looking for a personal, intimate encounter. I'm asking, Lord, that our prayer life, our time in the Word, will be followed by a submission to the growing convictions that you place into our ordinary life. And we may not have a dream, a vision, or an angelic counter, but nonetheless, we can come to hear the voice of peace, the voice of conviction and duty. Save us, Lord, from moving by fear. May we be covenant people who understand that this is a wake-up call and that you're moving us into a greater focus, a greater fidelity. I pray now, Lord, redeem your people. May this crisis not be wasted. I pray especially for those who are sick and those who are afraid. Draw very near to both of them, I ask. And may our faith grow as you move us from comfort to discomfort to confidence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.